morning again and welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you here this morning. And uh, boy, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Amen. Right, big flakes out there. Uh, if you want to run outside real quick and run around them, that's fine with me. Um, but looks like it'll be fun driving home, right? Well, it's good to see you. We're glad that you're here uh, today and uh, thankful for the opportunity uh, to be able to open God's Word together. And, uh, you know, I, I know this in many ways goes without being said, but uh, let's don't ever take that for granted, right? That we can gather together and openly and publicly open God's Word and uh, receive uh, all that He has for us. And uh, we're thankful for that. Well, uh, this morning I'm, I am particularly excited to be able to share with you uh, I'm going to do a little bit of something that I've actually wanted to do for a really long time. Um, I have often sort of thought uh, that it would be really fun uh, to take kind of a year and have our, at our Christmas time uh, to do kind of a dive into the resurrection of Christ. And then to at Easter time uh, do a dive into the birth of Christ and to kind of look at those two things maybe a little bit differently uh, than where we normally are at at those times of season because they're connected, amen, right? These two things are uh, uniquely and significantly connected together. The reason that we celebrate Christmas is not because it was just the birthday of another person, not because it was the birthday of a famous person, not just because it was a birthday of a significant person, but because it is the birth of the Son of God. And so we get to celebrate together. It's also, I think, interesting. Not only do I get emotional, but I also have a cold thing going on. So you're going to get some voice cracks and all that. Sorry about that. Um, but I also think that it's kind of interesting uh, that God does these significant events uh, in the darkness. It's one of the things that we're going to kind of unpack this morning. Uh, but this morning I've titled this message, In the Darkness, because I want us to sort of think about this, right? When we come at Christmas time, a lot of times we think about the birth of Christ, right? And we have this picture of the nativity with the star that is above uh, the stable or the cave or the inn or what, you know, whatever it is. And, uh, and it's at nighttime and we sort of get this, right? Because the angels appeared to the shepherds while they were, uh, you know, with their flocks at night. And so we kind of have this idea of, you know, Christ being born at or around, you know, maybe nighttime and we gather for candlelight services. And at the very same time, in the very same way, uh, there was something else significant that happened at nighttime, during the nighttime, uh, maybe, right? We don't know exactly when it happened, but it was discovered on the cusp of an evening. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, in some sense, these two events might have even happened uh, at similar times of the night. And we don't know that. That's a, a little bit of conjecture. But uh, it is significant that these two events are tied together. As we celebrate Advent, you know, the focus that we have uh, this year that we're looking at is this Emmanuel, right? That it's Jesus being given to us, that it is God with us. And I was thinking about that this week. And I was thinking about, isn't it good and isn't it significant to us that it's not Emmanuel, God with them, right? We don't look at it as being God with them, that God was 
in human form, uh, Jesus Christ given to them in that day and age. But it is Emmanuel. It is God with us. And so how is that possible? How is that true? We're not there at the presence of his birth. We're not there to live with him as he lived out his life of ministry and his miracles and his teachings. We're not there to witness for ourselves his death and his burial. And so how is it that God can say, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. How is it that when we gather together for Christmas, that we can proclaim that Jesus is with us? Well, it is because of the powerful act of the resurrection. It is the power of the resurrection that enables us to come together at Christmas time and to say, Emmanuel, God with us. Us, and not just God with them at some point in the past, but that he is with us in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to continue on in the book of John. I took a little bit of a break from that when Pastor Paul was on sabbatical, but uh, we're going to dive back into John. And we just happen to be uh, this week in John chapter 20. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up with me there. In John chapter 20, we see the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so everything from this point until the end of the gospel, it's just two more chapters, is about the risen Christ, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and listen, this is not, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a feature of Christianity. It is the main event. It is the main event of all of Scripture. We talk about Scripture being Christocentric. That means that everything points to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Christ. Everything in the Gospels points about Christ. And everything in the Epistles points back to Christ. And the fact that He is the Messiah, the Promised One. He's the fulfillment of the redemptive promise of God the Father. And it is Christocentric, but even more refined than that, the resurrection is the pinnacle event of the life of Christ. It is the main event. It is not just some aspect, it is not some just feature, it's not something that we just celebrate at Easter, but the resurrection is why you and I as believers are gathered together today. And it is why, if you are not a believer, if you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, it is the one fact that you must wrestle with and consider to rightly dispose of what and who Christ is or is not. And so this morning, I want to walk through a little bit of that with you. And I'd like to start, before we dive into text, just talking about the significance of the resurrection. And I know for many people, uh, you know this, right? And you've grown up in the church and you're aware of these things. Uh, But I just want us to sit in the truth of the resurrection and be reminded of its power and significance in our lives so that we might worship him more fully. And so what we're saying is that the resurrection is the central work. It is the central work of Christ. It is the central message of Scripture. And it is the central power of the gospel. I'm trying to get my PowerPoint going. And now I'm clicking away and it's not going. So it is what it is. Um, The resurrection is central to all of it. And so why is it central? One, for starters, the the resurrection is the point of redemption. The whole purpose of God creating and redeeming his people is to raise them to eternal glory so that 
we can worship him forever. That's the point. This is the point of his redemption. Resurrection to eternal glory. Not only glorified spirits, but in an ultimate way, glorified bodies as well. It's the point of redemption. Secondly, the resurrection is the demonstration of God's power. Our resurrection, thank you. Our resurrection is the demonstration of God's power. Our resurrection is secured by the power of God. The power of Christ demonstrated in his resurrection. It it is like the song says, right? That because he lives, we also will live. Thirdly, the resurrection is the validation of his offering or his sacrifice. The resurrection is not only a demonstration of his power, but it is also a validation of the offering that was made because God was satisfied with the sacrifice Christ offered for the sins of his people. God raised him from the dead, validating his work on the cross. He said, it is finished. God's saying, I am satisfied. He raised him. He ascended him to eternal glory and sat him down at the right hand of the throne of the Father to intercede for his people and to bring all into eternal glory spiritually and in resurrected form. Fourth, the resurrection is the greatest event in human history. It is. It is the greatest event to ever occur in human history, in redemptive history, or in history, period. It is the most significant expression of the power of God on behalf of believers. It is the cornerstone of the gospel promise. We are saved so that we might be raised from the dead and go into heaven where we go forever with our resurrected Lord in our resurrected form. The purpose of salvation, again, is a resurrected people. The reason that God sent Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, to be born and to live and to die and to sacrifice his life for our sin and to be raised again is so that we too might live with him. That we too might be resurrected into eternal glory because Christ conquered death because he conquered sin we will be raised to dwell with him forever and this is deeply significant to us because it is our eternal destiny it is our eternal destination if we know Christ Romans chapter 10 9 through 10 says if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved it's part of the gospel message That we believe not just that Jesus was the son of God, not just that he lived a perfect life, not just that he died on the cross for our sins, but we believe that he was raised from the dead. And if he had not raised, then he is no different than any other prophet that came before him or after him. It is necessary for salvation. That's why the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, It is this truth of the resurrection which you heard, which you have received, and which you believed, in which you stand. It is the very essence of the gospel. And to signify that on an ongoing basis, Sunday, the first day of the week, has become the day that we as a church meets to worship. 
I don't know if you've ever paused to wonder about why do we meet on Sundays? Why do we not meet on Friday, the day of the crucifixion? We meet on Sunday because it's the day of the resurrection. The church has been doing that since the church began. Since the apostles on resurrection day, the first day of the week, met with Jesus that evening. And the church has always met on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection. And all four gospel writers record actual, the actual history of the resurrection And so even this morning, we're going to look at a few of the different Gospels just to give a more complete picture to what's going on. But the composite of all four Gospels is the total story of the resurrection. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that give us the full, revealed, inspired picture of the resurrection. And so now we we talk about the resurrection, and we sing about the resurrection, and we celebrate the resurrection. But there are important things for us to note, I think, when we think about the resurrection. The first is this, is that no one saw the resurrection. Have you ever stopped to think about it? Nobody saw it. But listen, it is not an event that needs to be seen. All you need to see is the person who was dead. Right? And there were many witnesses. And we are witnesses Because Christ lives in us. But no one saw the resurrection. No one saw it. No Bible writer tries to explain the resurrection. I I, I mean, the the science of it, the pathology of it, the way that it actually took place. Because there is no rational explanation. And that's really not a problem that the Bible doesn't explain the resurrection. Because it's a creative event. It is a supernatural miracle like all the other miracles that the Lord did. We had an entire creation account of the universe in one chapter. The first chapter of Genesis, you go from absolutely nothing to an entire universe coming into existence in six days. The fact is stated and the results are obvious. But there's not a detailed explanation of exactly. We have a detailed explanation of what took place. But how those things took place, we don't know exactly how it happened. We don't know how God exactly did creation. But we know that it's here. And we know that he told us that he did it in six days. And he is God. And so we believe by faith. And we don't know how many of the miracles that Jesus did occurred exactly. Uh, There's no way to diagnose uh, or to understand them completely from a human perspective. We have no explanation specifically of the resurrection. No one was there. We don't know exactly how it happened. But it doesn't matter how it happened, right? It happened the way that all miracles happen. It happened because God willed it to happen. And by his supernatural power, it happened. How it happened doesn't matter, but that it happened matters. And we really don't need to know how a miracle happened, but there were eyewitnesses. You can know that it happened without knowing how that it happened. We don't need to know how the resurrection happened, but we certainly know that it happened. Does that make sense? Or did I just confuse everyone? (laughs) Right? But we know that it happened. Can I, can I sit here and explain to you exactly how it happened? No, 
It's a miracle. It's a supernatural event. But listen, there are several lines of evidence given in Scripture. It is not a blind faith, right? It's faith, but it's not a blind faith. It's a logical and reasonable faith that has evidence supporting what happened. And so we have lines of evidence that are given to us in Scripture. There's an empty tomb, right? That's a pretty good indication. There's an angelic testimony directly from heaven. And there are eyewitnesses. And all of that is going to be laid out in the 20th chapter of John for us. And so before we get back into that, let's review a little bit. John, his point in the gospel is for us to see the glory of Christ. To see the glory of God, even in his death. And he showed us the glory of Christ because he showed us that Jesus was literally in charge of his own dying And then he was literally in charge of his own burial. And now he is in charge of his own resurrection. And that is to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we might believe. And that by believing, we might have eternal life in his name. The Old Testament promised the Messiah would rise. It's promised in Psalm 16, he will, says he will not allow his Holy One to see corruption, but show him the path of life. He will not corrupt in the grave, yet he will, through the grave, move into life. Isaiah 53, he will be cut off, but he will be made alive. He will see his offspring. He will be eternally glorified and exalted. Jesus promised that he would rise. He said, destroy this body, and in three days, I'll raise it again. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the earth. And a day and a night really referring to a part of a day. We'll talk about that. And then we have the apostles. The apostles preached the resurrection. And you start in the book of Acts with the first sermon by Peter, and they preached the resurrection. All through the book of Acts, the subject of was the death and resurrection of Christ to show the Messiah from the very beginning to meet the first day to commemorate the resurrection. And that's why we meet today. We are gathered here today because today is Resurrection Sunday. Today. It's what we celebrate. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 20. And let's read. We're just going to look at 10 verses. Sometimes at Easter, we kind of look at the big picture of all of the things that took place in uh, the, the events of the resurrection. Uh, but for my time, as we walk through John, uh, I just want to take a little piece at a time uh, so that we can really dive in and see what's going on in the text. So John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read the text for us. It says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciples went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, But he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings wrappings lying there. 
in the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to, to their own homes. What a powerful story of the resurrection of Christ. Well, as I mentioned, I think that there are key evidences to this. The first is the testimony of the empty tomb. And so let's look a little more closely at the text. It's the first day of the week. That would be Sunday. It's early, and so it's early because, or because it's early, it's still dark. The Jews numbered their days. They didn't give them names like we do, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, right? They gave them, they numbered them. The Sabbath was the seventh day because it commemorated the seventh day when God rested from creation. And they always worshiped on the Sabbath day. So this was the first day after Sabbath. This was our Sunday. And Jesus said he would rise on the third day. He had been buried on Friday. And he was in the grave a few hours on Friday before sundown. And then there was all 24 hours of Saturday. And then he would have been in the grave for about 12 hours on Sunday. Because the Jewish days went from sunset to sunset rather than sunrise to sunrise. And so Friday ended at sunset. And Jesus had already been in the grave on Friday and all through Saturday from sunset to sunset and now about 12 hours on Sunday. And it's early. Mark says that it's very early and the sun had risen. Luke says that it's early dawn. Matthew says that it's begun to dawn. John says while it is still dark. I I love that, right? Don't you love the honesty of Scripture? There's no colluding that's happening here. There's no master editor that's sitting back and saying, well, these things are a little bit different. Let's make sure they all line up exactly right. right? It's the integrity of Scripture that's maintained in the honesty of these statements. And yet clearly it places this all, the arrival of, all, of Mary Magdalene all at the same time. It's daybreak, right? And when it's daybreak, it's very early. And when it's daybreak, as Mark says, the sun is risen. And as Luke says, it's early dawn. As Matthew says, it's begun to dawn. And as John says, there's still a dusty darkness. The sun has probably arisen over the eastern desert, but the eastern desert was behind the Mount of Olives. And so it would loom over the city of Jerusalem and probably created a literal shadow until the sun would come across the top of the Mount of Olives. Until then, the city would be absorbed in this dusty darkness. And so it's a very simple but credible perspective of four writers. And more specifically, it was John who said it was still dark when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And so what does that tell us? Well, what we know to be true from the other writers is that she was the first one there. She was the first one. Dawn happens fairly rapidly. But when she came, she was the first one. It was still on the dark side of dawn. Now, we know that Mary Magdalene didn't start out alone. According to Matthew chapter 27, another Mary, Mary the mother of James, was with her. So she was not alone, but she got there first. She was was in a hurry. She got there before the other women got there. 
Matthew tells us in Matthew 28 verse 1 that both Marys headed for the tomb, but we know that Mary Magdalene got there first. Now there were even other women that were coming along as well. The women that were at the foot of the cross, the same women that were there on Friday with Joseph and Nicodemus. And they were helping to bury the body of Jesus. It says in Luke chapter 23 verse 55, the women who had come with the Lord out of Galilee saw the tomb where the body was laid. And so they were at the cross and then they were at the burial. And of course, they didn't go anywhere or travel anywhere because it was the Sabbath. And now the Sabbath is over. They've awakened the first morning of the first day. And the first thing that they think about is getting back to the tomb. They, they actually have this in mind. We're going to go back and we're going to pour some more anointing on the body of Jesus. And so that's the scene when we come to verse 1. Mary Magdalene is the first one. And she comes to the tomb while it's still dark. Right? It, it, it mimics this picture that we have of the birth of Christ here now at the resurrection of Christ. She may have looked through the dusty darkness as the sun began to move a little higher and it became clear to her that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so now here we have the first line of evidence for the resurrection or the testimony of the empty tomb. And that is that the stone is rolled away. Now listen, the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. That wasn't the purpose. It was rolled away to let witnesses in. The resurrected Jesus doesn't need a stone to be removed. We see that later in the evening when he walks through the door. When he shows up to meet with the apostles. He didn't need the door to be opened. So the stone has been removed and Mary Magdalene arrives and she sees the stone taken away from the tomb and notice her reaction. She fears the worst. Verse 2 says that she ran. She, she spins around and runs. She's assuming that Jesus is still dead, but taken. And that's exactly what she says to Simon Peter and to the other disciple who is John. She says they, whoever she thought they were, have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Doesn't it strike you here as clear evidence that they had not planned to steal the body of Jesus? She didn't expect a resurrection. She is not part of a plot to fake a resurrection. They would never go and do that. They would never go out and preach and die as martyrs for something that they had faked. Peter, Peter and John, they run also. Peter and the other disciples says that they went forth, verse 3, and they were coming to the tomb. And the two were running together. Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb. She spins around. She sees that the stone is rolled away. Uh, she might have taken a peek to realize the body is not there. And then she goes and she tells Peter and John. And then while she's telling Peter and John, and Peter and John are running, in the meantime, then there's these other women who arrive. And when the other women arrive, the angels appear to them. So Mary Magdalene missed the angel, but she'll have her own experience later because she's on her way to Peter and John, who then turn and begin to run to the tomb. And that's where we get the second evidence of the empty tomb, and that is the absence of guards. Because here's what's interesting, right? Peter and John and the women... There is something deeply significant that they have no idea about, that they are completely unaware of. What they don't know is what happened on Saturday. 
They don't know that the Sanhedrin got a Roman guard to guard the tomb. That they put a Roman seal on the stone so that no one would come to fake a resurrection. They put a seal, a Roman seal, which means that it would be a crime. A violent crime, in fact, if you broke a Roman seal. And they put a significant amount of Roman soldiers there. And they didn't know that. They also didn't know that in the deep, dark night of Sunday, God sent a very localized earthquake. But before he sent the earthquake, he put all these soldiers under some sort of divine nap. And they all went to sleep. And then came the earthquake, and the earthquake, because of the earthquake, the stone is rolled away. And and Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 4, describes all of this. And the soldiers had no idea what happened. And so they fled the tomb. Why not? Why wouldn't they leave? Because they had checked, and he was gone. And they couldn't figure out what caused them to go to sleep, because they were professional soldiers. And it was a violation of their duty. They had severe repercussions. And they don't know where the earthquake came from. And they don't know how the stone was rolled away. They don't know why the body isn't there. But it's not. And so they had no reason to stay. And so they leave. And we know that they're gone because Mary Magdalene never refers to them when she gets there. The other women never refer to them when they get there. Peter and John never refer to them when they get there. They're gone. They're startled awake in the deep Sunday darkness, shaken by an earthquake, out of their divinely induced comas, and they know that they have failed their duty, and so they go right back to the Sanhedrin. And they have a collective testimony that the body is not there. And they're trying to handle this very confusing reality. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But that is the third evidence of the tomb, right? It's simply this, that the body is gone. The body's gone. So, you know, think about this. Meanwhile, back at the tomb, Mary Magdalene has assumed that maybe somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. And she had no thought of the resurrection. She had no idea about the resurrection. So she turns to Peter and to John, and they don't have any thought of the resurrection either. And so they run. The two of them are running together. It's important to note here that John wants the readers to know that he was faster than Peter, (laughs) since he's the author. And because he's the author, he decides to mention it twice. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. But he was also a little more shy than Peter, and he didn't go in. He's stooping in, and he sees the linen wrappings there, but he doesn't go in initially. And so Simon Peter, he comes, and he follows him, and he enters into the tomb. Peter was not shy. We know that, right? But both of them eventually enter into the tomb. They saw the linen wrappings there, the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, there's the second time he refers to it, right? He wants everybody to know he's fast. And then he enters a tomb and he saw and he believed. What did he believe? He believed that the body was gone. That's what he believed. We, We don't know exactly what he's referring to there where he says that because right after that in the next verse it says, and yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So they didn't have a full and complete belief at this point. And so maybe he's a little bit like the man who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But the point of this is that they had no expectation that Jesus would rise. The women didn't, and the leaders of the apostles didn't. 
But that leads us to the next evidence of the empty tomb, and that is the grave clothes are placed. They're placed. You know, think about the elements that we've looked at. There's evidence of the empty tomb. The absent guards, the stone is removed, the body is gone, and now the grave clothes are placed. They're lying in place. Now, you have to go back to the burial and remember that they didn't embalm his body. They wrapped the bodies like a mummy. And in the case of Jesus, they had about a hundred pound weight of spices. And so they would wrap a little bit and dump some spices and wrap a little bit and dump some more spices and wrap a little bit and dump some more and more and more and more. And the spices were simply designed to overpower the stench of decaying flesh. And they would wrap around and around, and then they would do the same thing with the head. And they would wrap and wrap around and intermixing with spices. So the body was wrapped, and the head was wrapped separately. Now, if somebody stole the body, do you think that they would have unwrapped it? Do you think that they would unwrap this dead and decaying body? Why would you do that when it would be a lot easier to just pick the body up wrapped and probably smelling better than it would smell unwrapped and try to carry it out of there. Nobody would do that. Nobody would unwrap the body first and then carry it out. But even if perchance somebody decided that they were going to unwrap the linen around the body, and would they gather the linens and place them in particular places in the tomb? But no, the linen wrappings were lying where the body had been. The face wrappings were where the head had been because Jesus had just gone through them. He just went through them. This is no grave robbery. If the disciples did this, they wouldn't unwrap the body. And and who else would unwrap a dead body? The disciples wouldn't do that because they didn't even expect a resurrection. The body was there on Friday. Everybody knew that. Everyone knew that the body was there. Everyone knew that he was dead. The Roman executioners knew that he was dead. That's why they didn't break his legs. They ran a spear into his side and blood and water came out as an indication that his heart had burst. He was dead. Several hours went by as they were wrapping him and putting him in the tomb. Clearly, he was dead. Everybody knew that he was in the grave. The tomb was covered in by the large rolling stone over the entrance, sealed with a Roman seal, guarded by Roman soldiers. No one could come and steal the body. But then who would? Certainly give the apostles a little bit more credit. They almost, with exception of John, all died as martyrs. They died because they preached Jesus crucified and risen. If they had faked his resurrection... That they would have probably that would have been the most idiotic thing for them to do to, to fake the resurrection and then live out their life on that hoax and to die because of it. How could they sustain it their whole life and die as martyrs for a fraud and a hoax? The Jewish readers, I, I, or not readers, the Jewish leaders, I think, they were more afraid of the resurrection than even the disciples themselves. They knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they weren't dealing with a messianic disaster that the Jewish believers were dealing with, right? They they were in the middle of a messianic disaster. 
the Messiah had died. They expected the Messiah to reign. So this just seemed to be, to them, the absolute end. The Jewish leaders didn't have any idea that Jesus was the Messiah. They just saw him as a blasphemer. They were frightened by his power, but they admitted that he had power. But they saw that his, they thought that his power was from hell. And they were afraid of hell's power raising him and, and as well as maybe the disciples trying to steal his body. And so that's why they put the guard. That's why they put the seal on the tomb. Clearly his body was there and then it wasn't. It wasn't. No one saw the resurrection. But listen, you don't need to see it because he's gone. He's gone. His body was there and then it wasn't. And then maybe the greatest evidence, I think, of the empty tomb is the last part of this, which is a very senseless explanation. We go back to the soldiers. If you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 28, we just want to look at what's going on with the soldiers who have left. They're back at the Jewish Supreme Court trying to explain what happened. In the meantime, you know, the Lord's talking to his followers. He's telling them to go to Galilee and that he's going to meet them there. But in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 28, it says, Some of the guard came into the city, city of Jerusalem. And, you know, they're sheepishly kind of reporting. And this is what it says, To the chief priests, all that had happened. What do you think they said? We don't know what happened. We are all asleep. There was an earthquake. The stone rolled away. The body's gone. And that's all we know. They were totally confused. Verse 12, so they assembled with the elders and consulted together. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elders, gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. Can somebody say bribery here? Whatever the soldiers said, it wasn't acceptable. You can't just say that there was an earthquake and that the stone was rolled away and that the body is gone. That's not acceptable. And so in verse 13, it says, you are to say, the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, if that isn't the most ridiculous explanation you have ever heard, I don't know what what would be. There's a small problem. How do you know what happened if you were asleep? How do you know that's what happened? What a stupid plan. This is what you're to say. This is what they said. The disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Well, the implications are that they failed to do their duty. And there's a punishment for that. And so what's going to happen to them in terms of punishment? Well, they, they, had, a, they had a plan for that too. They said, you know, we, if in verse 14, if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And by the way, the Jewish leaders, they owned Pilate. They owned him. And they forced him to crucify Jesus, even though he declared his innocence six times. And so they took the money, verse 15, they took the money, did as they'd been instructed, and they went everywhere and they said, the disciples came and stole his body while we were asleep. And this is the story that was widely spread among the Jews and to this day, to this day. Think about this. John is writing this probably some 60 years later. And that's still the story that is among the Jews that the disciples stole his body. And we know that because the soldiers who were sleeping figured that out, that that's what happened. Right? So the evidence is there. There is an empty tomb. 
and all of these things. The stone is gone. The, the guards are absent. The body is gone. And the, the linens are wrapped in place. And we have this ridiculous explanation. And so we put it all together. The tomb is empty. The women testified to an empty tomb. The soldiers testified to an empty tomb. Peter and John testified to an empty tomb. The grave clothes testified to an empty tomb. The Sanhedrin testified to an empty tomb. And they come up with a ridiculous concoction to try to explain it away. But no one, no one ever denies that the tomb was empty. No one. No one denies it. Nobody denied that a body was there, and nobody denied that the tomb was empty. And so what do you think? What does the evidence point towards? Well, there's a second evidence that I want to look at, and it's the testimony of the heavenly angels. We have the testimony of the empty grave that is formidable in terms of evidence and proof. But then we have the testimony of the heavenly angels as well. And again, I know we're flipping around a little bit. If you want to flip over to Mark chapter 16, just to give some balance to the John chapter 20 text, uh, let's look at Mark chapter 16, because this looks at the women and what's going on while Mary Magdalene is back getting Peter and John and then coming back to the tomb. Mark chapter 16, verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they bring they brought spices coming to anoint him. And this is early. Again, early. The first day of the week. As verse 2 says, when the sun had just written. They're saying to one another as they approach, who is going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Which, you know, is the common thing to do, to have a stone in front of the tomb. Who's going to roll the stone away so that we can go in and put more spice on his body? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, which was extremely large. <clears throat> and so this is important. The Bible tells us that the stone was large. The implication is that the women couldn't have done it. And entering the, the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, wearing a white robe. And of course, this is an angel. And so Luke says that there were two angels. Uh, John says that there were two angels. Uh, the first you know, they're near the women and then they're at the head and the foot of the body where the linen cloth was lying. But there are two angels. So in two of the Gospels, we have one angel being referenced because there's one that's speaking. But we know from the other two Gospels that there were two angels that were there. And so why does this matter? It's the rule of witness, perhaps. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 talks about this, that all that is offered and all that is declared as true must be confirmed in the mouth of two witnesses. And so uh, we have these two angels that are there. And the, remember, the women have no idea what has happened. And they run into the angels in the tomb and they're amazed. They are awestruck. They're astonished or alarmed. Um, it's this emphobos. It's the idea of where we get our word phobic. They are terrified. And it says that they bowed their faces to the ground. And probably the angels had to maybe repeat themselves a couple of different times because they were so much in shock over what had happened. This was not something that they were expecting and it certainly was not something that they had planned or orchestrated. And then as a second uh, evidence of the witness or the testimony of the heavenly angels 
we actually have not a senseless explanation, but we have a consistent explanation. The angel said this, don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. There it is. That's the explanation. That's the truth. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled. There's a a whole lot of running going along in this morning. It sounds terrible. (laughs) They went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were in panic. They were trying to process something. Listen, they're trying to process something that they never expected to happen. You know, we have the benefit of looking at the totality of Scripture, and we might say, well, how could they, Jesus said this, and he's talked about that. But they didn't know, they didn't understand, but it's proof that it was not orchestrated, that this was not planned by the disciples. And so one last time, you can go back to John chapter 20, and we'll end our time there. I won't have you flip around anymore. But if you go back to John chapter 20, verse 9, when the women finally begin to sort of clear their heads and Peter and John begin to realize what's going on, it says in verse 8 that John believed. And again, we're not totally sure exactly what it is that he believed or how complete his faith was, right? It, it might have just been simply that he believed that the body was gone. <laughs> he believed that because it wasn't there. Because it says, for as yet they did not understand scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And that would be the Old Testament and the New Testament scripture. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. You notice that? They just went home. They went home. The ridiculous notion of critics through history that the disciples were so committed to the resurrection of Jesus that they fabricated it is completely contrary to the testimony of Scripture. They don't even fully believe until they see him and touch him. And so in many ways, the testimony of the tomb and the testimony of the angelic angels and the testimony of the eyewitnesses that we'll unpack next time when we come back to John again, it gives weight to another testimony. And that is the testimony of unbelief. Where you, what, you know, what you find everywhere here is unbelief. There's definitely faith. There's, there's a small amount of faith, but it's confused. They didn't expect the resurrection. They didn't fake a resurrection. They would not do that. And they certainly would not spend the rest of their lives preaching a false resurrection and dying as martyrs for someone who did not rise. So the unbelief of the disciples is a crucial evidence for the reality of the resurrection. You don't have to flip there. In Luke chapter 24, it talks about Jesus appearing to other uh, disciples. And our Lord says this. He says, you're foolish. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And eventually he revealed himself to them and then vanished from their sight in verse 31. He reappeared that night with the rest of the apostles who had gathered together, verse 44 in Luke chapter 24. And he ate with them and he said, 
These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And he said to them, it is written that the Christ must suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that the repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. Finally, the eyewitnesses of Christ saw him as the risen Christ. It is their unbelief that is the first evidence of the resurrection. Followed by their true belief in the risen Christ when they saw him. And so the first line of testimony is the resurrection of Christ. The second is the angelic declaration. And the third is the testimony of witnesses. And so I want to take some time here at the end to just stop. And to think about this. And to think about our own faith and our own critique of the person of Christ. See, we oftentimes feel like we need to be able to see things in order to believe them. That we need to be able to understand the nuances of how resurrection is even possible. And we get so fixated on these details that we miss the big picture. And we miss the overwhelming evidence of the resurrected Christ. There are so many people that get bogged down and they miss the simple gospel message. We may not understand all the specifics. We may not know all the scientific nuances of how the miracles of creation, the miracles of Jesus' ministry, the miracles of his death and resurrection, or even the miracle of our own forgiveness of sin that is found through faith in Jesus Christ. But what is absolutely certain is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And that He is Emmanuel. And the same Jesus the same Jesus that spoke creation into existence is the same Jesus that became flesh and dwelt with mankind it's the same person that lived a perfect life. He was without sin so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. It's the same Jesus that suffered and died on the cross. It shed blood so that his Sacrifice might be the fulfilled payment, that it might fulfill the wages 
of our own sin. And it's the same Jesus that conquered sin and death, that rose from the grave. And it's the same Jesus that lives in our hearts and walks with us today. It's the same Jesus that invites us into relationship. It's not some hoax. It's not some lie that was told and perpetuated by a few. It is a factual event in human history that has evidence that bears fruit, not just at that time and not just in that day with the tomb and the angels and the eyewitnesses, but it bears out in the reality of our own lives. Because as we sit here today, it is Resurrection Sunday. And the reason that we're here is because Christ is risen. And the reason... We know it because it's true in our hearts. And if you don't know it and you're trying to decipher these details and answer these questions and and, and dive into the skeptic concerns, have at it because the evidence proves itself out. But the greatest testimony of the living Savior is the reality of his work in our own lives. It's Emmanuel. God with us. Not just God with them. Not just God back then. But God with us. Because he is not dead. He's alive. And this Christmas. It's not Easter. It's Christmas. But we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the birth of this child. In maybe the darkness of night. But we celebrate it because that child would grow up. And in another darkness of night, there would be an earthquake. And the power of the Spirit of Christ would come upon him. And he would be brought from death back to life. As a representation and as a testimony, as a message, as a proclamation to the world. That in Christ, you might also Live with him forever. The gospel is so rich and it's so simple. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. God loved the world so much that he sent his son on the cross to die for us. That God sent his only begotten son to suffer the wrath of our sin so that we ought not to. And if we simply believe and put our faith in him, then we receive the gift of eternal life because that was the point, that we might be resurrected with him. If you'll pray with me. Father, we thank you for you again today. We just thank you for who you are. We thank you for the consistency of the word of God and particularly with regard Uh, to this most marvelous of all events, the resurrection of our Savior. God, thank you for opening it to us by the Holy Spirit in the text. And God, as we think about our crucified and buried and risen Savior, we think about what he has done for us. And may our hearts be filled with joy and gratitude. Wash us 
make us clean as we celebrate the death of our Savior in his glorious resurrection. And God, we ask that you would use us mightily for your glory in our Savior's name. Amen.